0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with a nine-time Major League All-Star, 1975 American League MVP, Fred Lynn. All right, let's do this. And now, here's Here's your your host, Brett Boone. Boone.
1: Welcome to the Boone Podcast, I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program I'm joined by a nine-time All-Star. He was the AL Rookie of the Year and MVP in 1975, but more importantly, he's a fellow Trojan. Ladies and gentlemen, Fred Lynn. Freddie, thanks for coming on the program.
2: Uh, My pleasure, Booney. Always uh, fun to talk to another Trojan.
1: Yeah, I I got a couple of them coming up back to back. So we we got plenty of stories, different takes out of the gate. I want to ask you this question. Tell me if there's any truth to it. 2011, you're in St. Petersburg, Florida. Ted Williams, Hitters Hall of Fame. Ghost at the Vinoy Hotel. True or false?
2: Uh, That's true.
1: What was, the, what was going on? I just heard that was a story, and I said, I've got to ask Freddie that, because he'll, he'll well, be wondering hole where hole. I heard well, that.
2: Yeah, it's haunted. Um, we didn't know that at the time, but my wife <clears throat> woke up about 2 in the morning to uh, music being played uh, adjacent to our room. I was sound asleep. I didn't hear it. And so uh, she called downstairs. Uh, well, actually, she didn't, because the Bruins had just won the Stanley Cup, and there were a lot of... Uh, Boston people there, so she thought, well, just let them party. And then uh, it got a little louder, louder, louder. And she saw, uh, thought she saw something outside the door. So she looked outside, and there was nothing there. And so, anyway, the next day, um, she tells the front desk, you know, I heard a lot of noise, da 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 da. And she goes out of our room to the left, and there's a stairwell there. There's no room. So basically it was a party in a stairwell, but back in the day, that used to be a room before the fire code made them put a stairwell there. And I guess the place is extremely haunted, and the uh, gal at the desk said, oh, they were very active last night. Are you on floor number five? And we said, yes. He <laughs> said, oh, man, they were going crazy. <laughs> Wow. You know, because for,
1: for those of you out there listening uh, on the Moon podcast right now, Vinoy Hotel is the is the hotel with the majority of of the big league teams. When they go in to play the Tampa Bay Rays, that's where they stay at the Vinoy. I've stayed there many times. I've heard the stories, but I've never heard the ghost. So it's interesting that somebody actually witnessed uh, what the, what they uh, what they've been saying about that Vinoy Hotel for years.
2: All right. There's a lot of teams that won't stay there. In fact, there's a lot of guys, uh, uh, especially if I'll just be blunt about it, the Latin guys, you know, they believe in a lot of different things. I had a Cuban player, Louis Teant, you know, he he had voodoo chains on him so he wouldn't get hit with the (laughs) lion's eyes as a pitcher. So they think a lot of things, and they believe a lot of different things, and they wouldn't stay there. (laughs) They wouldn't stay
1: there. (laughs) I believe it. Um you're born in Chicago. I think you were raised in Los Angeles. Give me a snapshot into Freddie Lynn as a kid, as a little boy growing up. Always baseball. Was Who was yeah, your I grew team? Up in
2: Armani. It's a, just a suburb of LA, just southeast of LA. Uh, basically, it was a dairy town. If you can believe it, where you actually drove and, and got your milk at a dairy. Um, it was very blue collar, and I went to public schools. And I was what you would call a seasonal athlete uh, back then, whatever the season was, and I was no different than any other of my buds. We just played whatever sport that season happened to be. So we all played football, basketball, uh, baseball. Uh, I even ran track back in the day. So um, it was a, a great way to grow up. Uh, I've I, I obviously played a lot of sports as a kid. But uh, I had a a good group of uh, kids around me, and we went from kindergarten through high school together. So that was a a really nice experience for me to move around and knew the guys uh, and became, you know, good friends as we were teammates. And I played three sports in in high school. So it was uh, just a fun time to be in Southern California. Obviously it's changed a lot. But – I just cringe when I hear people say, well, my kid's going to play just one sport. Or or some coach says, well, you can't play that sport if you play that sport. It just drives me crazy because that's not the way it used to be. Um, I I know there's a lot of money out there, and they think that their kids are going to be this and that. But, gosh, just let them be kids and let them have, have some fun. That's what we did
1: yeah and I've had so many guests on on the show that and we go down this road and we talk about it because, yeah, I mean, you're a kind of a generation, you're my dad's generation, but my generation was the same way it was we played seasonal sports, and, you know you were encouraged to play all and and um nowadays it is different, and i I just to to not just harp on it too much, I always just thought the other sports are good for you. They teach you lessons about another sport. You play basketball, there's lessons to be learned on the basketball court uh, that translate to the baseball field and vice versa. Plus as a kid, as you mentioned, I think the most important part of that was let them be a kid, let them enjoy their life. Most of these little kids aren't going to go on to be uh, big league all stars. Most of them are going to go on to get a job and, and go out and, and kind of uh, go into real life and, and, when I coach these kids uh, after I retired, because I had kids that coming up and I coached them, I always just wanted them to one day look back, you know, when they're 25, 30 years old, they have a family of their own and say, you know, those, those 12, 13, 14 year old years for me, man, they were a lot of fun instead of, no, there was a lot of pressure and I was playing one sport and I had to make it
0: because
1: it, it usually doesn't pan out very good for the, for the, for the majority.
2: Well, no, it, it doesn't. And what you find, what I see um, from parents and kids, is that the kids burn out. Um, if you, if I were to play one sport all, all season or all year long, say, because I was a pitcher, I'm sorry, I pitch all year long. Well, geez, I can see why guys have Tommy John surgery when they're fourteen or fifteen because they're abusing their arm. Well, you and I, we never did that. We gave our arms a rest and we did something else. Um, but you're right about cross uh, uh, sports when you play basketball. and I was a DB and a wide receiver in football, so all that footwork, all those drills that you did in those sports and I was a point guard, um, it made me a better center fielder. Uh, I didn't really have to work on playing center other than just seeing balls off the bat because I already had the footwork down uh, being an, another sport. So those, those kinds of lessons are invaluable when you finally get to a higher level, because you have all this experience, and especially, like you said, there are different lessons to be learned in each sport, especially in football. Um, there's all kinds of things that go on there that don't go on in any other sport. So you learn a lot about yourself, and uh, when you get to, if you, if you get to the higher level and a professional level, um, that definitely will help you out, uh, just the fact that you did all those things as a kid.
1: El Monte High School. Um, You went on to USC. Uh, Tell me a little bit about late in your high school career, junior, senior how that recruiting process went. Was it always SC or did you consider another college? And I know here I want to you know, I'm going to after you answer that, I want to talk about you had options. A lot of guys don't have options. They have that college scholarship. They maybe get drafted. If they do, maybe they get drafted late. It's really not a decision to make. But you were a third-round pick of the Yankees as well. So I just want to get into a little bit of that junior, senior year, the recruiting process, what you're hearing, high draft pick, uh, and how you formulated a plan and, and uh, obviously went on to USC first. But uh, I'm interested in hearing about that.
2: Yeah, it started when I was a sophomore. Um, you know, uh, pro scouts were still – You know, I was a pitcher then. So there were a lot of teams interested me as a pitcher, but I was being looked at not only from the major league scouts, but basically scouts from colleges because the three sport thing. I had scholarship offers in three sports. So, you know, there was always somebody there for whatever sport. And Especially my senior year, uh, if it's football season, you know, you don't see them as a football player, but they're there. Mostly college, you know. People And they'll talk to you before and after games and things like that. So I knew who was around. Um, As far as baseball was concerned, uh, geez, they were always there. Uh, Because we didn't draw very many people. There were dads and scouts in the stands, that's about it. Maybe a girlfriend once in a while. But uh, that'd be about it. So they're pretty easy to see. And back in those days, they would give you a card, you know, I'm so-and-so from the Cincinnati Reds, you know, fill out this. I'll tell you how get away, what all that kind of stuff. Well, here's how it worked. Um, I was the first person in my uh, family to go to college, especially a major university. So that was uh, the game plan all along. Um, back then in 1970, ye- nobody was getting 100000 to sign, not very many guys. So you were going to go to school, and that's what, that was my game plan. And I told my dad and I told all the scouts, listen, I'm going to school. Uh, I, I did accept a scholarship to SC to play football and slash baseball, and I was UCLA and Stanford were after me big time in those two sports, um, and then a bunch of schools back east as well. So anyway, it narrowed down to a couple, and then SC won out, but I told the Pro Scouts, I'm going to school. Don't draft me. Don't waste a pick. And so they didn't, because there were a number of teams that were interested in drafting me in the first round. and. Pitcher slash center fielder didn't know quite which way I was going to go, and then uh, so when the Yankees drafted me, I was like, I was kind of stunned because we told them I'm I'm going to LC. You just kind of wasted a pick, Uh, but I just to preface that I played on a semi-pro team when I was 16. It was sponsored by the New York Yankees. We played uh, in a baseball stadium adjacent to the Rose Bowl, and we were the Pasadena Yankees. And so I was playing against college guys and guys in the minors and, you know, 23, 4-year-old guys. I'm 16. And I wore old Yankee uniform. I had Moose Gowren's old uni. Um, so that's I played with that team for three years. So the Yankees knew about me. Uh, Roy White had played on that team and then went to the big league. So there, there was some history there. And uh, I, I think they thought maybe since I played on that team they'd take, take a shot at me out of high school. But uh, I went to SC instead.
1: You mentioned the football and the basketball. Was baseball always your passion? Was that the number one? I mean, you played all three. You had scholarship offers for the others. But deep down, did you know I'm a baseball player? Or maybe?
2: No, I don't know. I was a football guy. You know, baseball. Really? I I was really good at at baseball all all the time. Um, And better than just about everybody else. But football is what I really liked. I really enjoyed. uh, I played Wide receiver, quarterback, and defensive back, and I ran punts and kicks back. And so, you know, I, I had some skills. Um, the factor, the deciding factor, was size. Um, in basketball and football, size matters. In baseball, not so much. So I was 170 pound DB at SC. You know, uh, tackling Sam Cunningham at practice at 2:30. So you know, I'm just thinking, ah, man. After my first year, I get <laughs> that gets anything. old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got knocked out. I played in three games, got knocked out three times. So and twice by my own middle linebacker. I started yelling, "Hey, I'm on your team." Um, so that was really the factor. I, I had such a good uh, season at SC as a freshman. I just said, "Ah, this looks like where I'm going to go." And boy, it was the toughest decision of my life to go into Coach McKay's office and tell them that I was not going to play football anymore. That was a very, very difficult thing to do for a 19-year-old kid. Well,
1: 71, 72, and 73, you're national champions. I mean, you're in the middle. SC is a powerhouse. It's the heyday. It's Rod Dato. I came along, Freddie. I played there. uh, My first year was 88, and that's the first year – I believe first or second year Rod had retired from from coaching. I got to meet with him a lot. You know, he was around the ballpark. We'd go to a we'd go to a banquet here and there and I'd hear Dato speak. He always reminded me of like he's he's the Tommy Lasorda of College baseball, you know, he's got that that presence behind the mic and he's just he's an entertainer. But he's called me Tiger. You know, I, I don't know to this day whether he, he knew what my real name was. But you're right there in the middle of of SC. Like I said, in the heyday, you win three national championships. Um, give me a li- give me a little Rod Dado and, and what that was like playing for him, what it was like being a USC baseball player during that time.
2: It was, uh, it was really pretty cool. and when As a freshman, uh, when I was a freshman, it was the, only the second year that freshmen could play varsity baseball. Um, and you still couldn't play varsity football yet as a freshman, so we had our own team. But as a baseball player, so I made the varsity as a freshman. And I first thing I did is I looked at our schedule, and I'm looking at all the, the schools we're going to play. And at the bottom of the schedule, it has – uh, June 5th uh, through 10th, Omaha. And had Omaha on the schedule, <laughs> you know, wow. this is where the College World Series is played. I'm going, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. He, he wanted the player, parents to, not, to know, take your vacation time then because that's where we're going. And I thought, wow, uh, okay. That's pretty interesting thinking. But the, he's the most positive guy I ever played for. I played for a lot of Hall of Fame managers in my big league career. But I learned more about how to play baseball the right way from Rod Dedeo than I learned from anybody else on this planet. Um, he expected perfection, and uh, you'd think that maybe we play a perfect game now and then. You know, winning three national titles in three years, never lost a tournament game, never lost a championship game. But do you think we ever played a perfect game? Nope. You know, he'd <laughs> have a. I'll tell you this little story. He'd you have know, a book at the end of the dugout. It was the fine book, and first find of the day was a buck, and then every find thereafter was fifty cents, I think. But nobody wanted to be the first find of the day, right? Because you ruined the perfect game. And Roy Small is our shortstop, pretty good shortstop in the big leagues. Ball eats him up at short. You know, Rod goes to the the pad he starts writing down. You know, and kind we of go, oh, it's a it's a bad hop. And he says, Tiger, Tiger, you have to anticipate that bad hop. And we go, okay. <laughs> So, obviously, we could never play a perfect game. To give another example, uh, Gary Carter, the older brother of Gordy, or Gordy Carter, the uh, older brother of Gary Carter, who used to play with Montreal, he was our left fielder. We're up in Cal, we're losing by a run. He's supposed to bunt. There's two guys on. He, he fouls both balls off, and then he hits a three-run homer to win the game. Well, Rod finds him for not getting the bunt down. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, And when we took infield, it was impeccable. He wanted to be as good as any uh, infield, outfield practice as you see at a major league stadium. And that's the way we performed in practice. He was tough on you guys, Uh, everybody, really. And he'd stand right behind you. And, boy, if that didn't make you nervous, nothing did. So when we got into big games or championship situations, We never panicked, we never beat ourselves, we never made errors, we never threw balls. We didn't do any of that stuff. We let the other teams do that. Uh, We were the best team on the field all the time. Nope, there were some really good teams, Um, but we outplayed them in key situations. And Rod was really a stickler for fundamentals. And by the time I signed professionally, uh, I'd look around me and guys in, in Triple A or even in the big leagues, I say like, God, these guys don't even know what they're doing. They have some talent, but they have no idea about the fundamentals of the game and how it should be played, and how you have a team concept about one goal: win. You know, win championships. That's it, and how I can help my team win that particular day. And that's what I learned for uh, Coach Dato and playing at USC.
1: We recently had Bill Walton on the program, and and he was talking about his days where John Wooden, and you know, the the uh, iconic coach that he was, obviously, in college basketball. And I was thinking to myself, because I knew I had Freddie coming up, I'm thinking, well, it's kind of, I know college baseball is is not as big as college basketball, but kind of Rod Dato's kind of the John Wooden of of uh, college baseball. I think that's Absolutely.
2: fair. In fact, yeah, Wooden was at UCLA. Um, right. In fact, when I was being recruited to go to UCLA to play football, where did they take you? They took you to watch a UCLA game. That was when uh Karima Jub Jabbar was there, Lou Al Cinder back in those days. And the head football coach was Tommy Prothrow. And we'd sit and watch those games and you get all pumped up because you're at a UCLA basketball game. Well, I don't know that recruits coming to USC to watch the baseball team got all pumped up because you know, it was a small little stadium. Yeah, we were really good, but the only time uh The kids would come out to watch us if somehow we were on TV, maybe playing against UCLA or Stanford. But uh, other than that, we, you know, two or 300 people in the stands. So the two great – well, and we had John McKay too. So you've got McKay in football, arguably one of the best in the country. You've got Rod Dato at USC and John Wynn at UCLA. So uh, a small community right there with some great coaching.
1: After seventy three, uh, you end up being the second round pick of the Boston Red Sox uh, draft day. A little different then than it is now. You weren't you weren't on the on the podium. It, you know, I remember how I got drafted. That was a ninety shoot. It took you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a letter, but I got a phone call eventually. Uh, take me through that day a little bit. Excited. I mean, you come out of high school, you're you're drafted by the Yankees. Now it's Boston. And do you ever think back, if you would have have signed with the New York Yankees, how your life would have been different? I mean, you jumped into the biggest rivalry of Red Sox-Yankee, but you end up being a Red Sox.
2: Yeah, that would have been interesting. In fact, I I tell that story to Red Sox fans. I I do some stuff for the Sox, and when I get to see some of the public, they they don't know, most of them don't know that I was drafted by the Yankees. What? (laughs) You know, I was supposed to be the next Mercer, that you know, replaced Bobby Mercer. Left-hand hitter in Yankee Stadium, can play center. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, back then, Yankee Stadium center field was huge, especially in left center. It was like 450 out there. So you need somebody who could run, and then it's a short porch to right. So if you could pull the ball, boy, yeah, you know, it would be a perfect fit. Uh, obviously better than Fenway, because Fenway I was a, I came in there as a dead pole hitter, and I had to learn how to hit the other way. But as far as draft day was concerned, I was supposed to be a Dodger. Done deal. My coach, Rodato, you compare him to Tommy Lasorda, uh, they were best friends. He was friends with Campanis and uh, even Walter O'Malley, the guy who owned the place. Um, they were all tight. So I'm supposed to be a Dodger, and the, the guy that was scouting me He wanted to draft me in the first round, and the Dodgers said, "No, I think we could sneak him by here. You know, maybe he—they can't hit lefties, or they were circling the uh, thing around. My mind have trouble hitting left-handed pitchers, so that's why my status dropped. I was the forty-first player picked. I know all those guys that picked ahead of me, and one of them could do what I did. So I was pretty pissed off about it, to be honest with you." so I, I, I don't know if I get a, a phone call or a letter from Boston, but I'd never spoken to anybody from Boston, so it was a complete shock uh, to me that I was drafted by those guys. Um, super scout uh, that, that drafted me. But, uh, you know, we talked and we haggled some things out, and I said, <laughs> I want first-round draft money. <laughs> he said, "Why well, can't yeah. do that. I said, well, I'm not signing it. And he said, Well, how about if we give you all the incentives all at once? And I was thinking, Okay. You know, back then, if you were a double A, they give you an incentive. you get the triple A incentive, that kind of stuff. So basically, I got all that money up front, which is what the first round guy got. <laughs> so I said, Okay, I'll do it. But I was not happy about it, to, to be honest with you. Uh, I, David Clyde was the number one pick in the draft. Uh, high school pitcher out of Texas threw 1,000 miles an hour. They thought he was going to be the next Nolan Ryan. Um, so I understand that pick. But all the other ones?
1: No. <laughs> well, you get there pretty quick. Seventy four. Uh, you go to the minor leagues and, and you get called up to the big leagues, get your cup of coffee, which we all which we all get. I, I think you only had forty abs, but you hit over four hundred that year. When you first got to Boston as a young player, anybody, anybody in particular take you under their wing?
2: You know, uh, Bernie, back then, um, rookies, uh, you know, were persona non grata. You, you didn't speak. You know, if, if somebody spoke to you, you were you, grateful that they were talk to you, be honest, especially the older guys. And when I first got there in 74, I was a giant fan as a kid, so Orlando Cepeda and Juan Marshall were on the team. And I'm going, oh, this is so cool. And Louis Aparicio was our sh- shortstop, and he was from Chicago, the White Sox. So these guys – uh, were guys that I looked up at, to as a kid, and now I'm teammates with them. But then, you yeah, you're in your stripes. And once you did, once you proved to the veteran players that you could actually play, yeah, that's when they said, okay, kid, um, you're, in, you're on the club. But prior to that, not much. Not much talking.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It was like that. It was like that for me. It was, I I had a little bit of tough love. I mean, I the guys would take me out after buy me new suits, but man, they gave me a hard time. And it was it was like you were, like you were explaining. It was pretty much you you speak when you're spoken to. You prove your you you got to earn your stripes you prove it on the field and once you kind of you know you kind of prove to them that yeah you're a big leaguer and you belong you're right you kind of get welcomed into the family but it's not that right away hey no we're all <laughs> we're all buddies here it's you know it's that tough love and it's hey prove it and you'll be a part of this part of this group. We'll talk to you, but no, I understand it, guys, because it was similar when when I was coming up. Uh, you mentioned Fenway, and you mentioned, and it just took me back. You said you were a pull hitter. You had to you had to learn to hit the ball the other way. I didn't like Fenway particularly because I my my strength was when I was when I was hitting the ball the other way. That's when I was really in that zone. And all of a sudden, I go to Fenway, I see that tiny little, you know that. Not short ports, <laughs> tall ports, but really close to me. And I'm thinking, well, it's so easy. I could just flip up a sack fly here, and it's a double, maybe a homer. So it threw me off a little bit because right center there, and especially they talk about pesky pole, that's a long way. If you don't wrap it around the pole, dead right field's like 360. Most most no, fields 80. right there are 330. So yeah, I had quite walk, the quite the opposite 10, as you.
2: Yeah, you, t- you take 10 steps off pesky pole, which is 301. 10 steps – in and then you go straight back, it's three eighty. And that's, yeah, it's that's a, it's that's big a right field. We used to call that Death Valley, and not you just had to hit howitzers to get them out of there. Um, but yeah, so as a left-handed pole hitter, when I got there, I' thinking, man, um, I, I need to be able to take advantage of of that wall situation. And back then, but it wasn't padded. So it was concrete wall, so uh, the guy shied away from it pretty quickly. So they they started getting their feet on that dirt, and then they, they'd get alligator arms, and balls would fall in that wouldn't even hit the wall just because they didn't want to kill themselves. So I, I – and I used to stand on top of the plate, most pole hitters do, so they could hook balls outside, and I did the same thing. And so I, now I'm trying to figure out, well, if the ball's in, how am I going to hit that ball that way? And I just intuitively brought my hands in and the, the, the knob of the bat's going towards the pitcher, and the barrel of the bat lags through the zone, and then the ball goes the other way, and with power. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a self-taught thing, but I, I worked out it at a BP, and, and I just tried to hit everything that way. And then in, during the game, things would, you know, you, you, you do it enough times at BP, it becomes second nature. And then balls inside, it's great, you'll love this. You have two options. I can either get the head out if I want, or if he beats me a little bit, I could pull my hands in and hit the ball the other way. So it's as a hitter, it's nice to have those options w- w- available to you, but uh, it's, it's something that you need to work on. And I'd like to see more guys in today's game, maybe think about going the other way a little bit more.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I always knew for me, you know, I, especially the second half of my career, when I was hitting the ball, driving the ball the other way at will, that's when I was at my best, whenever I got into that pull mode. And like I said, I never had to be the home team of Boston and I'm probably glad (laughs) uh, as a righty because that wasn't, that wasn't my strength. And, um, but I had to go in there like everything else. You got to make the adjustment to the park you're in. Um, Was Don Zimmer your first manager?
2: No, um, uh, Daryl Johnson.
1: Daryl Johnson. And then it went to Zimmer.
2: Yeah, Daryl Johnson was the AAA manager when we won the AAA World Series in 73, so he got promoted. And uh, so, 74, 75, it was uh, Daryl Johnson, and then he got fired probably about two months or so into 76, and then Zim took over.
1: Carl Yastrzemski. Uh, interesting, you know, someone that, you know, I never, uh, I never played against him, obviously, but he's, he's one of those iconic Boston Red Sox, you know, he's almost like a, like a Drysdale, type for the Dodgers. He's someone for for me of my era, you know, Koufax. It's like, oh, when I think of Koufax in my brain, that's like Babe Ruth, someone that you can't really touch. Ustremsky is kind of like that in Boston. He's kind of that iconic, you know, Ted Williams type figure. The only reason that Ted was different is because I met Ted and he lived in the San Diego area and he was (laughs) buddies with my grandpa. So he was real to me. But, yes, did he have a different aura about him?
2: Yes. Um, he, you know, I, he, and when I got there in 74, he'd already been the Triple Crown winner in 67. Uh, you know, he basically carried that team to the World Series. And, you know, everybody talks about Yaz's ability to hit, and he hit for power. But he was a great left fielder. I mean, he could play the wall like nobody else. Uh, back in the day, again, when it wasn't padded and the wall was made out of tin, so that uh, the ball would come off differently if it hit a stud or hit in between the studs. It would fall straight down. No one played it like Carl did. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story. In 75, he was playing first base mostly, but Jimmy Rice got hurt at the end of the season broke his hand, so he had to play left field in the playoffs. I'm thinking, God, he hasn't been out here for a long time. And uh, so we're playing in Oakland against the A's, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'll cheat over there a little bit. So ball fit in the gap, and he dies, stops the ball, throws the guy out at second, and I'm thinking, I don't have to worry about him. <laughs> he still knows how to do it. You know, even though he was in his mid-30s, the guy could play. He was a complete player, uh, very much kind of into himself. You know, he was not a uh, boisterous guy. But uh, once you got to know him and if he respected you and liked you, um, you were in. And then, you know, you got to see the real Carl. But uh, not many people got to do that.
1: 1975, what a year, Uh, not only personally for you, but. Uh, for, for the Boston Red Sox, for baseball, one of the, you know, still talked about World Series in, in the history of the game. It's 1975. You win, you win a gold glove. You're an all star. You win the uh, rookie of the year and the MVP, the first ever to do that. Um, 331 21 one hundred and five. You lead the league in runs, doubles, all as as we call the the college term as a freshman, your rookie year. Pretty pretty unbelievable. You know, I I try to come I, I looked at it and I started thinking about two thousand and one for me when I was in Seattle and we won all those games and I had my best year ever. Yeah, I'm um, checking you out. It I was did, checking out that but team. it did. That,
2: was, that was unbelievable.
1: But we didn't it didn't end. You know, it ended. We didn't finish the deal. And to this day, we still talk about it. But you it, it's kind of your first. I mean, this is the first time you're a rookie. Are You go into that season. You finish the season. It's got to be unbelievable. Uh, and now you're going to the postseason. Uh, at that point, are you feeling like this is just one of those magical years and everything's going to finish? You come out of SE, you won uh, three College World Series. And now all of a sudden, of course, I'm Freddie Lynn. We win College World Series. We win World Series as soon as I get here. Um, At the end of that year, take me through that postseason for you. I know you beat Oakland uh, to get to the World Series where you're going to face the big red machine. And... um, just take me through that postseason, um, 1975 and the city of Boston, how that city, is it electric? and it, it's a huge baseball city. Uh, I've, yeah, I've it seen it enough the in my career, but that had to be, is, that felt extra special.
2: Yeah, it did. Um, you know, Boston in 1975, uh, it was in an electric gear for us. We had, you know, I was a rookie, but so was Jim Rice. Uh, we had uh, one, two, three, we had four, four starters, uh, 23 or under. Uh, Fisk was like 26 or 27. So we had a really young team, which in Boston is very identifiable because of all the college kids. And so they just took to us like white on rice. I mean, it was unbelievable the amount of support that we got, especially when school came out, got out in June. And there were so many young guys. It was so much fun for us. We're just having a good old time. But when we got to the playoffs, I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of how it's supposed to be, and you brought that up about USC, and rightly so, because that's just, for me, it was the natural progression. Um, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be. This is why I'm here. And so now we, get, we dispatched Oakland. Uh, they were defending champs three straight years, and we beat them. And we swept them. And now we go into the series, and now we've never seen the Reds. I mean, I've heard about them. I, I know who's on the other team, but I've never seen them play. don't know them, don't know the pitchers, no scouting reports, nothing. Um, and I asked Yaz about some of the pitchers I, and faced that guy. Okay. <laughs> so it's just like being a rookie. You, you don't know anything about the guy you're, that you're facing. And then I said, well, this is just like the World Series. I don't know those guys. We'll see how it works out. So uh, it was just a back-and-forth uh, series. Um, and you know, got down to game seven, and a, a bloop single of all things uh, beats us, and we, we lose that game four to three, and lose the series four to three. And but you know, people forget uh, not the te- my teammates, but we didn't have Jim Rice for the for the series, and he was our number four hitter. So if we have Jimmy Rice, that's a whole different ball game because the guy that replaced Jimmy didn't even get a hit in the series. And I know Jimmy would have done some jam- damage against their lefties. So I'm, I'm very disappointed, um, just like you were in 2001, that we didn't finish the deal, we didn't win. And I'd never experienced losing a championship game. So I, I was like sitting in my locker, room, like, wow, this is really weird. It really sucks. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was thinking, looking at the locker room, I said, well, you know, we'll be back. And, and we had a great run as Reside players we just didn't get back to the world series we had good teams but there was no wild card so we could never get back to the playoffs but yeah it was disappointing there's no question about it um i still think about it i still think about uh, morgan's blue pit and uh the the condition of the field at the time we had uh just tremendous rains there was no drains in the outfield it was just like running uh, through water, trying to get to the ball. If we'd been playing in Seattle on turf, I'd have caught that ball. But, you know, I running through a quagmire, I'm just like, I'm slow motion. I see this in my dreams. And the ball just, I, ah, I just can't quit there get there. And that's what beat us. I was like, oh.
1: Game <laughs> well, six. The uh, in,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Game six. I know you've never been asked this before, but Fisk gets the homer. Where are you at? Where I'm were you deck. when he hit it?
2: I'm on deck, so oh, okay. I, yeah, we're we're watching uh, Darcy uh, warm up, and he's he's throwing sinkers. He's he's got everybody out on ground balls, and I know Pudge is a low ball hitter. And we're talking, we're watching him uh, warm up, and Pudge says to me, "You know, Freddie, I'm going to hit one off the wall. You drive me in." I said, "That sounds good to me." And first pitch is down and then He Phew, he cuts it off, and it's out of there before yet yeah, anybody knows it it's just a, a laser and he hits it so hard it can't hook foul and so everybody shows him jumping well i'm jumping too but and then I, I, I many years later i said hey pudge what happened to the part where i drive you in right <laughs> yeah. well, and you, and so you, you had was, the best angle you, were, moment, you had sure.
1: you, yeah you had the right d- down the line angle so you knew he oh, he yeah, was
2: giving my head i said that's gone Game over. Yeah, he's given he's
1: given us the TV version, but it was over right. before you know. He didn't need to do that, <laughs> and you <Yeah>. knew it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, Pudge is a kind of a gregarious guy, anyway. Um, right. But yeah. It was. It was. The place was just bonkers. I mean, yeah. I, it was. It was loud then. It was. It was a little louder than when Bernie put, hit the pinch at home run in like the eighth inning to, to tie the game at six six, but right. uh, it was. The base, that World Series put baseball back on the map. Everybody in the country was watching that series. I don't know what the ratings were, but it was off the charts. You know, football, we we're kind of taking a backseat to football a little bit. After that World Series, everybody was just talking about it. It um, didn't matter that we, know well, it mattered to me that we lost, but it didn't matter to the country. They said, man, that was just fantastic. And, and so it, even to this day, uh, people come up to me and talk about that series.
1: Uh, 76, 77, 78, 79, and 80. You're an all-star every year. You win three more gold gloves. Uh, probably your best year, 79, it, 333, 39, and 122. After the 80 season, uh, you get traded to California angels and you sign out of USC. You're kind of, you know, from a kid, you're, you're a Red Sox, uh, shocking to you that that happened. You're going to the California angels and you're going to play for the Cowboy.
2: Yeah, um, back then, uh, we didn't have the best relationship with the ownership, uh, all players, basically. In 1976, is when free agency happened, and now it was part of that situation. Um, Carlton Fisk, Rick Burleson, and I, we went into the 76 season unsigned because we knew that uh, the Mesher Smith McNally case was probably going to win, and and free agency agency was going to happen at the end of the year. So we played. Unsigned, three of us, all represented by the same agent. We all get uh, five-year deals uh, during the course of that season. And then uh, after that season, they got rid of all of us. So it was not about money. It was There was some ill feelings uh, from the ownership towards us. And so they got rid of us, and I got traded away. And I always thought I'd be a Red Sox player for life, to be honest. But to come to play for the Cowboy, um, we... In 81, we were a transitional team, I would say. Uh, But 82, we had all the moving parts. In fact, uh, your dad came over. Uh, And uh, we had, geez, we had like all-stars at every position. (laughs) It was like a who's.
1: I I remember it. I mean, because I'm just a kid (laughs) back then, kind of tagging along, driving you guys crazy probably. But I remember, you know, I remember Gritchie and Downing and Don Baylor and you got Carew and Reggie came. And like you said, Pops came over there, you know, from the Phillies all those years. And I remember I'm just walking around like, yeah, this is just normal for me. You know, this is where <laughs> dad goes to work. Well, and, you know, what?
2: And one of the first things your your dad said to me, uh, he was catching in the 79 All-Star game, and Carlton's on the mound. Well, they're, they're teammates, right? And I don't know how many lefties faced uh, Carlton during the regular season, probably not many. And so your, your dad said to me, uh, you know, Lefty couldn't get the ball in on lefties, you know. I, we, I, I was set up inside. He could never get it in for for whatever reason. Probably because he never faced them, because lefties would bail against them. And that '79 season, I was having a pretty good year, and I fouled off a couple tough sliders. And he I could see this I could see this clear as day. Your dad's set up inside for a fastball. Well, it's out over the plate, and I had a two-run homer. And so your dad, still reliving that. He's saying to me, "Yeah, he could never get the ball in. I'm setting up in the side here. I know I can get it, get you out right there." And he left that out over the plate. One <laughs> of the first things your dad said to me when he came over.
1: Eighty-two. You, I, I still remember. I still lived in Jersey at the time, but I remember distinctly that. That series against the Brewers, Harvey's wall bangers. Yep. Cecil Cooper, I, I really liked Carew and Cecil Cooper. Cecil Cooper actually was a teammate of yours, I think, in Boston. Now That's you're playing was. against him. It's your first yep. time back to the playoffs. Uh, we remember about that series.
2: Well, we we beat uh, we won the first two games in um, Anaheim, and so we're going to play three at their place. And I think it was uh, the third game, um, either game three or game four. It might, might have been game three. Anyway, there was like six or seven of us that lived in the same area, Anaheim Hills, just 20 minutes from the ballpark. Prior to the game, and it was a day game. There was a huge fire, uh, wildfire, that was uh, all around Anaheim Hills and uh, Villa Park where most of us lived. And it was endangering houses, especially mine, because I was right on the ridge. And so, <laughs> we're starting the game knowing that we could have no homes. And uh, so, Sutton's sewing for the, those guys, and he's got like a no-hitter through five innings. Weird, like, because we're like, half the team is worried about other things. And finally, we get a phone call in the dugout. Every, everybody's okay. Uh, all the homes, are, the fire went in a different direction. Da 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 da. I let off, double, single, blah, 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 anyway, bottom line is we lost that game and gave them a little bit of momentum, got their foot in the door, and uh, they they ended up sweeping us. They bit, they won three in a row there, and it was so demoralizing because I knew we were a better team, and, and I'm thinking back, you know, how, how crazy is this? A wildfire could cost us a game, and no one even knows about it except for the players. So it's, it's weird stuff like that so that can happen to you. <laughs> and just like, wow, really? How is that possible that that could happen exactly the, the wrong time? But those are the things sometimes that happen in a playoffs scenario where fans might not even know what's going on, and it affects the players.
1: 83, you're an All-Star again. It's your ninth All-Star in a row. Uh, you're MVP of the All-Star game that year. And after the 84 season, you're free agent you sign with the Baltimore Orioles. Um, midway through the 88 season, I believe, or it was 89, you head to Detroit, and you finish up with, with San Diego in, in 1990. Um, I guess the question I want to ask, there were some – Interesting skippers you played for. And, and we talked <laughs> about, you know, Zimmer. Then you went to you had Gene Mock, uh, Earl Weaver, who's classic. Another guy I never got to. But you still watch the videos. You got to play for the for the infamous Sparky Anderson in Detroit. Um and then, at the end, with the Padres, your last year, I know it. Uh, you're only there a year, but you played for for Jack McKeon. I played for Jack McKeon in Cincinnati. Trader he took jack. over. <laughs> yeah, but what what was your experience with those with those skippers and uh, ones now you look back at the history books, pretty notable uh, managers.
2: Yeah, uh, just about every one of them was pretty fiery. Um, I would say trader jack of, of the of the group that you mentioned is probably the more affable of, of the bunch. But everybody else, Earl Weaver had a notorious temper and he was always getting in with umpires and Gene Mock used to have his say for sure. As did Sparky. Um but you know, that's one of the things I miss about today's game is the the managers getting in beefs with umpires. <laughs> and now they wanna a robo umpire I said, No, 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 no. Let's let's have those fiery guys, let's have that interaction, that's the fun part. But playing for those guys I, you know, Gene Mock, we call him the general, the little general. You know, he'd stand out there with his arms crossed and just check out the field. And and uh, I, I can remember him tipping over a couple spreads. Uh, for those of people are listening that don't know what that means, uh, after a ball game, players will have some sort of food laid out on tables, whatever. And uh, if, if your manager is not particularly happy the way you played, he may just tip everything over. <laughs> and I've seen this happen. Um, you know, how can you guys... Think about eating. You guys suck. Bah, blah blah blah, you know. So those guys that you mentioned are all pretty fiery, and those kinds of things used to happen. Um, I respected them all, and they knew the X's and O's of the game. Uh, maybe, probably, some of the guys that you mentioned, their Achilles heel was running a pitching staff. But uh, as far as running a game plan, they they knew how to do it. There's no question about that. And they were all very successful. And it was interesting to play for them. I I enjoyed all the managers that I played with, never had an issue with them, but it was fun to watch the interaction between different players and different personalities, because sometimes you know, they butt heads, and uh, back then the managers, you know, if, if they didn't like you, they could get rid of you. I saw that happen, too. You, know, you could be in the doghouse forever, and then the team all of a sudden, you're gone, you're traded. So that probably doesn't happen quite so much anymore. But uh, back down with those guys that you mentioned, sure as heck could.
1: They always used to say this, and I, I i don't know why. I knew Gene a little bit. I had met him. Gene Autry I'm talking about, the cowboy right. in California. But the, everybody always was saying, you know, I'd always hear this phrase. It always come up was, we got to win one for the cowboy. What was behind that, you think? Why was he beloved?
2: He was, um, you know, in, a, in an era where there was a very contentious, Atmosphere with players and owners. He was the one guy that stood out as a player's friend. Um, I, I truly believe that he cared about us, unlike a lot of owners. Um, and he would come into the clubhouse. You know, he's a, he's a Hollywood personality. You know, he's he, Gene Autry, movie star, this, that. He's done everything. But he loved baseball and he loved his team. And he'd come in there and talk to us in that drawl. You guys are playing great. I can't wait to see what you do next, and stuff like that. And in fact, in spring training, we would have spring training in Palm Springs, and we stayed at the what? The Gene Autry Hotel. Um, and he just he just couldn't be around us enough. He couldn't do enough for you. So. From our point of view, especially with the hardened veterans that we had in '82, we had player reps, we had league reps. I mean, we were, this, this team was a, the contiguous uh, team of all time against ownership, but they loved Gene. So I forget who's coined that. It might have been even Reggie, you know, which one won for Gene. In fact, they retired as, uh, they gave him an honorary number. And then they retired it in a ceremony for him. Uh, he was just a great guy, I, you know. Like I say, one of the—he's the only owner that I ever played for. That, you know, I I'd look at him shaking his hands, look at him in the eyes, and I believe what he told me.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's just not that way. I, I remember Dad played for. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name in Philadelphia, but he's kind of the last of those owners that. Seemed like they they cared about the the players. Now it's kind of a Carpenter, corporate deal. And it, Ruly Carpenter. Ruly Carpenter, Ruly Carpenter, he seemed to have that way about him. It's kind of a family business, mom and pop. Uh, whereas now it's very corporate, and it's it's big time business and and you don't have that interaction and that kind of family atmosphere around. I kind of like that part of it. Steinbrenner t- in a way, even though Steinbrenner was brash and, and man, he would call, he would call his players out and the, it would be on the cover of the New York times. But at the same time as a player, I might've liked that because it's like this guy really cares that he really wants to win. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I, Never I played for him. Never played for him. I
2: agree with you because he's on the other side for me. And I'm thinking, man, I'd like, I want that owner because you know what? If he sees a hole in the team, he's going to fix it with the best player that's out there. And I always admired that about him. Yeah, you know, it's it's his walk up. So if you're dogging if you're not playing. And he says something, okay, get you know play better. But I always uh, admired the fact and and wished that uh, some of the teams that I played for. Would be more like him and get guys that we needed, not the second tier guy or third tier guy, but the top guy. And I always admired that about Steinbrenner. He he got the best players that he could, and he treated them. You know, obviously he could say some things, but I, I think when it came down to it, he really cared about his players.
1: After ninety, you retire uh, career two eighty three over eleven hundred ribbies. 306 home runs you went into did some broadcasting ESPN from 91 to 98 you mixed in some college baseball uh do you like the other side of the mic
2: it was it was a, really an interesting experience um because when I went to ESPN to interview for the job um and I, I'd never done it before and uh my wife was in the uh, uh TV industry not behind not behind the camera not in front of it but uh, so I kind of did a demo tape for them and, and I said okay well let's, we'll try this out and they just threw me in a game boom okay here you go <laughs> so all right um, I, I knew that I knew the game but when that red light goes on and you have to say something you know you got to be a little bit eloquent and you got to be able to spring a, uh, put together a couple of sentences and in about two twenty 20 seconds. So it took a while to uh, figure out what information was uh, germane to the game that you had because there's piles of it every game. Uh, but I, I actually liked it uh, because I just got out of the game. I knew all the players, and it was a great segue into what I call real life. And I am very thankful for those years because uh, I still wasn't part of the game. I wasn't playing it. But uh, I was still out there going to the stadiums. I didn't even know where the press box were. Never been there before. That was interesting. But uh, watching it from that perspective, uh, I had a good time. I, I liked it.
1: 1994, uh, you're inducted to the USC Hall of Fame. But I think a big one, especially for you and how much you meant to that city of Boston. You were, you know, everybody thinks of Freddie Lynn, and it's always Boston Red Sox. Um, 2002. Uh, You're inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. You get that phone call and and you look at your numbers, uh, the career you had in Boston. It was probably inevitable. You kind of knew that, you know, one day I'm going to be in that Hall of Fame. But when you actually get the call, pretty special, especially that city.
2: Yeah, because uh, I I, kind of alluded to it a little bit. You know, I left under not under the best circumstances, so. When the new owners took over in 2002, coincidentally, see how this is going to play out, um, that's when I'm inducted to the Hall of Fame. So basically this ownership kind of righted a whole bunch of wrongs from the the previous owners. And I was shocked, to be honest, because I had absolutely no communication with the Red Sox from 1980 to 2002. So when, when they called me, and told me what their plan. I was like wow, this is <laughs> this is so weird. This is so surreal. Um, I was very happy, but uh, it's just uh, I was I was had glad it would have never happened under the previous regime. So it was really nice. And then ever since that time, you know, I've been welcomed back. And uh, the Red Sox have a quote-unquote legend skybox and I host it for corporate clients, and I've been doing that since 2002. So these guys. They they do it right. They, they did some really nice things in incorporating the alums back into the stadium so that the current fans can see guys of my age and even, you know, but a little bit younger. And they see us at the games, and a and you know, dad will be sitting with a kid and say, Hey, yeah, that was my guy when I was a kid. Um, so it's really kind of cool what they've done there.
1: Yeah, and I think I'll. You know, I think that's what baseball should do across the board. I think, you know, it transcends generations and it's really cool for, for, you know, guys your age and older than you that take their kids, take the, and their grandkids to the game and, you're standing there. That's Freddie Lynn. You should have seen him play. Whereas the son can can see maybe a current day player. That's his guy. Your grandson seeing the the modern day uh, Boston Red Sox. I, I I just think that's what baseball is all about, and and it's cool to hear that that Boston's really reaching out and really incorporating the the generations of past because that's what baseball is all about. Um, one question, and I'll let you go. Best player you ever played against that you just looked at from your dugout went, wow.
2: Yeah. um, That's a great question. And it's for me, uh, I'm a big George Brett fan. Uh, We've known each other for a long time, grew up in kind of not too far from each other. Uh, And when I saw Georgie play, I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's a real gamer. You know, he's, In the dirt, kind of a guy. Um, and you obviously, good hit, and he could feel better than most people gave him credit for. But, you know, it's between Georgie and Robin Yow. But I just like George. Uh, he's the all around guy. Um, I'd, I'd take Georgie just about over anybody. And I played with Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken, and I played with some guys. Uh, but I just, I just like George's game. You know, he's in the dirt. I, I like that. It gets dirty, and, uh, He's not afraid to voice his opinion, which I like
1: to. And he's a pretty good player. Yeah, pretty good. Well, Fred, Lynn, I, I appreciate it. This it's been a pleasure having you on. It was it was cool catching up. Uh, um, you know, I, 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 we cross paths once in a while at a, at a golf event or something, but it was it was really nice of you to come on, and, and uh, I appreciate it. Great career, uh, great Boston Red Sox, and. California Angel, Baltimore Oriole, Detroit <laughs> Tiger, and I, I, I don't know about you, but the end of my career, you know that people oh, would, remember you played for the Twins, Brett? I don't, I don't really count that. You know, I have <laughs> no, a few years it. I didn't really count, but uh, very cool. I appreciate it. What we do uh, each and every Boone podcast? At the end of the podcast, we kick it to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. Dan
0: gentlemen great job on a great podcast thanks so much for coming on sir <laughs> thanks Freddie. okay guys uh, thanks
2: a lot i uh, had a good time and uh we'll do it again
0: that's gonna do it for the brett moon podcast my name is dan levy the technical director producer voice of the Boone podcast ep executive producer rich herrera digital all gets uploaded by liz landry do us a favor share the moon podcast neighbors and friends and all those that love sports make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the Boone 29 i'm dan levy bass on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one